I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews today. I'm going to look at several passages in Hebrews and then continue our series that we began uh, last week. For sake of time, I won't say a good deal about uh, that by introduction. Again, you can uh, look at the sermon online or the audio if you want to listen to it on uh, podcast. By the way, we do have that back up and running if you want to get that uh, regularly to review the sermon or if you're out of pocket. But we are, I will say this, this is our Advent season. We're calling it Living a Theology of Christmas. You could probably also call it uh, Confessing Christmas in the sense that we're looking at the confessions, historic statements of our faith and using them as a helpful guide. I think one thing that's probably, I didn't say last week, but I think is important as we think about the title, Living our theology of Christmas is the fact that every single one of us has a theology. Uh, theology is not just for eggheads, for people with seminary degrees, for people that write books somewhere. Uh, theology is your belief and understanding of who God is. That, that's your theology, my theology, and our theology may be uh, biblical. I suppose we're always hoping as believers to have it be more and more biblical. Or you, someone could have a theology that's totally not biblical. You could have a theology that's robust, uh, strong, and, and deep, or you could have a theology that's pretty weak and sort of surface level. But we all have a theology, and our goal in trying to uh, push us a little deeper and using these uh, catechism questions uh, from the 1600s these weeks is to help us do that. Again, in the past, we've done of course, a traditional series looking at the gospel accounts of Luke and looking at the gospel accounts in Matthew or the, even the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, this year, we're just taking this approach. It's maybe a fresh way, a way that'll uh, maybe fill in some gaps for us that we have. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote things about what Jesus did and what Christmas meant that uh, are adding to the, the accounts in the, the gospels. They shed more light on some of those things. And also in today's time, even our sort of church, biblically-centered understanding of Christmas and the Incarnation, uh, it's still culturally trapped. And when we hear from voices from 400 years ago or 500 years ago, it allows us to have that clean sea breeze uh, blow uh, into our ears and lives. So last week, we looked at the where and when and who of the Incarnation in the sense of God's redemptive plan. There was this uh, covenant of works that Adam and Eve uh, failed in, and with them, all of us as humanity brought uh, down. And then there's this covenant of grace, this uh, new promise and new covenant that's established uh, after Adam and Eve sins through the whole Old Testament and finds, of course, its fulfillment in Christ. And so that's the, the timing, the when, and the where of redemption. And then, of course, the next question last week was, who? Who is this mediator of this new covenant? Who's this one that can live and uh, serve and follow God and love others in ways that you and I never do and make up for the many ways that we fail? And it's, it's of course, Jesus Christ, the incarnate one. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about the how and the why. And we'll use the book of Hebrews as a couple of scriptural passages and then, of course, uh, read again this week. And I, I know it's easy to let our eyes glaze over and our minds maybe shut down a little bit and start thinking about your Christmas list or what you're going to want to make for a party tonight for a meal or whatever. Uh, let's 
Let's dial in, right? The next 25 minutes, let's dial in and let's see what the Lord would have for us from his word and from even these uh, catechism questions from the Westminster Catechism. So uh, listen as I read, and I'm actually going to start. You don't need to turn there because you probably already have chapter 2 of Hebrews pulled up. But just a couple of verses from chapter 1 as well. It tells us uh, long ago and many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by prophets, but in these last days spoken to us by his son, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then if you look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me, Starting in verse 10, and I feel this passage really emphasizes the, the human nature that Jesus has in many ways. says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then jumping down to verse 14 with me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's you and me. right? We're human beings. We share in flesh and blood. That's what that means. He himself, Jesus himself, partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham, again, you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God, and to make propitiation, to make atonement for sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And then if you jump over to chapter uh, 7, chapter 7, we get a little bit more of the reasoning and the vitality, both of these passages showing the, the divine nature of Jesus, why he had to not only be fully man, but be fully God, starting in verse 23. The former priests, Hebrews 7, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, and he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's probably good enough for today to read from God's word. And then let me read to you, and hopefully they can put them up on the screen as well, the questions from the, the Confession of Faith, the Catechism. This is from the larger Catechism, and these are things that you could kind of chew on and meditate throughout the, the week as a sort of Christmas devotional, believe it or not. It's funny how you... As I'm preparing for these sermons, I'm looking at some of these things and wondering, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Why did I begin this sermon series on that? And this week was one where I just sat and I just read it. And then I just read it again. And I just read it again. And I said, well, why did they put that phrase in there? Why did they say it that way? And it started to percolate in me, you know, show me some things about uh, what Christ has done that I hadn't seen before. So the first question, how did Christ being the Son of God, become man. So this is the how today. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance and born of her yet without sin. And then 
Question 38. This is the longer one. Buckle up. Why was it required that the mediator should be God? So this is why was he God? Then we're going to ask why was he man? Why was it required? That he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. And to satisfy justice, to procure favor, to purchase a peculiar people, to give his spirit to them, to conquer all their enemies and bring them into everlasting salvation. Interesting that these folks that wrote this even are thinking about these things, rich things about the Lord's work for us. And then question 39, a shorter one for us. Why was it required that the mediator should be man? That he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. That's an interesting phrase. That we might receive adoption as sons and have comfort and access with boldness to the throne. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray as you challenge us mentally, cognitively, that you push us to reach into deeper uh, grasp of what this Christmas season means, that you would enrich our hearts, that you encourage our souls today, and that you propel us out, as we already heard in our service, to outreach and ministry and evangelism to the world around us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, if we think about this short series I'm doing as Confessing Christmas, maybe a subtitle for it, Living Our Theology of Christmas, Confessing Christmas, and we look at these historic statements about the faith, maybe a way to illustrate what I'm hoping will happen in our hearts and lives and in my heart as well is along the lines of, of maybe planning a big trip that you want to go on. You think about it, you, you usually don't start with the like local place that you want to make sure to go get food at when you're going to the Grand Canyon trip. And you don't start out with the uh, specific uh, lodging place with the number of rooms and what side of the hotel it's on for your trip to Alaska, do you? You start out with Alaska. You start out with the Grand Canyon. I want to go to the Grand Canyon. I want to see this great place. I want to go to Norway. I want to go to Italy. I want to go to this place. And so it's good and right to think about the, the big idea. And maybe it's just an image in your mind or you've seen pictures. You've seen it in a movie or seen it in a book or somebody you know talked about it. Say, I want to go to that place, that big thing. And then, and then you get into the next steps, right? Once you kind of make that decision, all right, we've We've saved up a little bit. We've squirreled some away for a couple of years or whatever. We're like, we're going to get to go on this big, uh, big trip, or we got the bonus, and we're going to get to go on this big trip. Uh, let, let's get into the details now. I'm excited that I get to go to the Grand Canyon. I'm excited to get to go to Alaska. Now let's look at, let's get on Verbo. Let's get on Airbnb. Let's find the, the perfect place. Let's see where we're going to stay when we're there. And then you start to get excited about that. Is it going to outlook over this place? What is going to be the layout of it? Does it have the pool? What does it have to do? And then you probably take the next step, if you're a foodie kind of person in particular, 
okay, what are the, what are the places to go get a good bite to eat? I'm going to enjoy some great food while I'm there. I'm really going to enjoy something to eat. Read this blog or find out who thinks what's the best places to eat outside of Anchorage, Alaska or whatever. We're going to get the best seafood that's fresh caught out of those cool ocean waters. You're going to check out probably, okay, now I got the big thing. I want to see the Grand Canyon, but then now I know there's little parts that you can go see, and there's a museum all about it, and they learn the history of it, and maybe there's a little local shop that sells some kind of pots or baskets or things that you want to get because you'd like to collect those. You're going to go through all of the details of it, and it only increases your excitement about the overall destination, right, the overall place. I think that's maybe what I'm hoping for us to get out of this. We all know Jesus came into the world, right? We know the incarnation. We love seeing the story and having it repeated to us, and, and that's the Grand Canyon. That's Alaska. But what does it look like to do it, you know, to, to arrange the room uh, that we're going to stay on this uh, trip? Uh, what does it look like to pick out the restaurant? And pay? what are the details of it that we can also get excited about that will only propel our passion for the overall trip, only make us more excited about it? So that's what I'm hoping for us to do today. We're just going to read through these questions. From the catechism, we're going to talk about a few biblical passages that relate to them and hopefully connect them back to the verses in Hebrews. But the first one is this, verse, uh, question 37. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Now, on the one hand, this is a paradoxical thing. This is something we can never fully understand and grapple, and that's okay. It's actually really good to have things in our lives that we can't put in a box and can't exactly understand, things that stretch our mind and that are beyond comprehension. In this case, it's evidence that it is a thing of God. It's beyond our grasp. But if we want to understand a little bit of it, the, the answer that is given is this. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, and, and then it says at the end, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her sub substance and born of her. I've talked about this before, but I think one of the things that the confession is getting at is that's really important for us to remember is that we believe this is true. This happened in time and space, not our little nativity, you, you know what I mean, but these things happened. The wise men uh, came, the shepherds came, Jesus was really born, he really took on flesh and blood. It's not enough as... Some theologians will say, and even in certain churches, that you believe in some sort of Christ of faith. You can't just, it doesn't work to just believe in the idea that this happened, that Jesus came and took on flesh. We are called and bid by the scriptures and required to, to believe that, in fact, it took place in time and space. These things happened. He, was, he came with a, the wording's kind of funny, right? A true body. Why do we need to say that? But it's true. He wasn't just uh, floating around. He wasn't just a ghost. He came physically in human flesh. A reasonable soul. So he had a mind and had a soul, right? He was, he was human in that full sense. And then it goes even further. Uh, born of the womb of the Virgin Mary, right? What could get more human than being born, right? Being born, that process of birth and of her substance, it says. And I just think this is a reminder because the culture presents to us alternative. If we don't believe in the Christ of uh, the, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, that those two things must cohere together, then we will go off. We will 
fashion ourselves Christians and go off on all sorts of rabbit trails. One of those today, probably we need to think about, I, I love our country. I am so thankful for our country. We are blessed to be in our country. There's definitely a version out there, though, of Christian nationalism that puts the nationalism a little bit before the Christian, right? And as Christians, we're always Christians first before our nation. We can love our nation and love it well. There's a version of Christianity that out, is out there that says we'll put contemporary sexuality views in the place of gospel views. And that's really our Christianity. We'll replace that. So whichever direction we go, if we don't have a biblical Christianity, we're going off on a, on a far beaten track. So it, Christ affirming humanity in, in his human nature reminds us these things of the Bible are true. They're meant to be believed in as a sound for us to to bank on. And then it says also in that question, it says that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, yet without sin. What's that about? Why does that matter? Why is that little phrase in there? If you've been around church stuff for a while, you've heard that before. The same sort of phrase is there in the Apostles' Creed. And why, why is that important? He's conceived by the Holy Ghost. I don't know about you, but, you know, you get older in life, and especially you have kids that come along, and you realize, like, you got some, you got some stuff wrong in your genetics with your family or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I got bad eyes. I've had glasses or contacts since I was in the third grade. Something's wrong. Now, several of my boys have that. My bride has, you know, perfect, perfect vision except for the reading, reading glasses now. Teeth. We, we, we've, I've got terrible teeth on my side. Plenty of braces work done to get this thing, and it's still not right. My, my bride, perfect teeth. Some, some of our boys have, have the teeth that are all messed up and have to go to the orthodontist. Well, those are kind of minor things, but how many of us have maybe depression, maybe mental issues that run in our family we see passed along? In our family tree, we've got alcoholism that runs through that pathway as well that that comes along. Maybe there's other heart disease or cancer or those kind of things or certain forms of cancer. You're like, yeah, grandma had that and mom had that and now children need to pay attention. And these things are passed down and we know so much more about it now that we understand DNA. It's actually, these things are actually, there's a corruption to the virus that's hardwired into our DNA and it's getting passed down. And so people of God, I hope you celebrate this Christmas season, this phrase that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost because Jesus has come and he's broken the flawed, sinful nature that comes through our DNA. He's busted up that, that contamination that's coming through for every single human being and he's remaking it and reworking it and has reworked it through what he's done on the cross. Isn't that a beautiful thing, right? Because you and I can't escape it any more than we can escape the stuff that we got handed down genetically with our propensity for cancer or our bad teeth or a bad whatever. Can't escape the sin that comes down to us. Only Jesus can deliver us from that, and that's why it says these things. So be encouraged by that. You know, that's a good phrase to meditate on and to understand. Well, question 38. Why was it required that the mediator should be God? Why was it required that the mediator should be God? And I'm going to put this together a little bit with question 39. Question 39 asks a little bit different question. Why was it required that the mediator should be man? But I really found it interesting. Again, there's some folks from the 1600s. I'm not going to go into the whole confession of faith. There's lots of great confessions of faith that we can draw from. There's lots of great biblical teachers today that we can draw from. But I started to think, like, why did they use this phrase with 
the, the description of him as God, and why did they use this as him uh, as man? And, and it's interesting. It says in the first question, he came fully God that he might sustain and keep human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath and power of God and power of death. So sustain and keep there. Okay, follow with me. And then I don't know if they can put it on the board, question 39. Why was it required that he should be man? That he might advance our nature. So the first one says he sustains and keeps us. And the second one says he advances our nature. Again, you're with me on the planning of this trip, right? We're Grand Canyon. We're talking now about what the hotel's going to look like. We're talking about where we're going to go to eat. We're, we're getting into the nitty-gritty, and these things are meant to help fuel our overall excitement for this trip. Well, I thought about this. and Isn't this interesting? This is exactly what uh, people do when you're, like, renovating a house. You think about a house that's been run down a bit. What do you do? You don't start slapping on uh, brand-new appliances and bring in all kinds of new furniture and put down new flooring if you got stuff that's leaking profusely through the roof or if the foundation of the place is all cattywampus and rotted out. Do you? You don't. You stop the bleeding, so to speak, right? You stop the damage and its progress. You solidify the foundation. You fix the roof. You get things stabilized. Then you go and make the improvements inside and add all of the things that you want to and develop it and beautify it. And I think this is, in a sense, what this is saying. It's saying that Jesus, again, read the question 38. It's interesting to, to ponder our salvation, what he's done, that he might sustain and keep human nature from sinking. So stop the house from decaying. Stop the foundation problems, the roof leaks. And then he's going to advance our nature. And we know that experience, don't we? When we are spending our time and energy and hopes and desires focused on sinful things, and that can be things that are obviously we know are wrong, we've got them listed out quite clearly in the Ten Commandments and we shouldn't pursue them. They can also be just idols that we make of the things in this life. But when you and I spend our energy, our heart, our soul invested in those things, guess what we're not doing? pouring our heart and soul into worshiping God, into doing our work really well for God's glory, into loving and serving our families, into reaching out to our neighbors, into even building, writing something new, building something new, developing something new. Our energy is packed for the ill, and then it can't be applied to the gain. I think that's part of what we should see in Christmas, that Jesus coming fully God, fully man, he wants to, ultimately, none of us is going to be fully there, and we only get you know, a small amount of the way there, we feel sometimes in this life. We're going to be glorified one day, made perfect, but he, he's intending to make progress in our, in our lives, to rebuild uh, who we are. And then, it, it's interesting, if you look at the last uh, part of this, for, for sake of time, I'll jump to the last part of this, this list that's there, and you say, I can't follow you, Pastor. There's a lot of terminology in here. This seems like a little bit of mumbo-jumbo. Goodness, please slow down and read this list. This is just, again, verse 38. What does he do? He, he satisfies justice. He procures favor. He purchases a peculiar people. That's you and me, and the peculiar word's kind of a funny word. 
gives his spirit to them, there it is again, conquers all their enemies, brings them into everlasting salvation. And then why should he be man? It says to, he does this to have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. We can have somebody that knows what we're experiencing, that we might receive adoption as sons and have comfort and access with boldness to the throne. Well, let me, I guess, close with, with this for sake of time. I'm not going to advocate uh, the Christmas vacation movie is like one that just should be watched carte, carte blanche. It might be good to, to fast forward through stuff, watch it uh, off of TV where some of the things have been removed or whatever you want to do. But I suspect pretty strongly that at least 90% of this congregation has at least one time seen Clark W. Griswold and Cousin Eddie in Christmas vacation. So maybe this will help drive home what I, I thought about with these, if I could take such manifold things as the Incarnation and the Westminster Divines and bring it together with Clark W. Griswold. I'm going to try it, see where we get. You know, it's interesting. You remember the whole theme of that movie. What is Clark concerned about? What's the backdrop? What's he frustrated by and worried about? The whole thing. He put that pool deposit down, but he's not sure he's getting his bonus, right? And he's forgotten. It's comical from the very beginning because by its very nature, a bonus is something that the company just chooses out of its generosity if it wants to, to give to you. There's no obligation. I know we'd like to believe the company. I don't know. Maybe today there is an obligation to the bonus. But in my mind, it's something the company chooses out of their generosity and kindness to give. But Clark's already spent it, right? He's not only expecting the money, he's demanding the money, and he's already spent it, and now he's worried about it, right? So he... He, he demands this gift be given to him, and you remember the ending scene, right? What does he actually get instead of the multi-thousand dollar bonus that he's hoping to get monetarily? The jelly of the month, Clark, right? And he gets the pamphlet that tells him he's got the jelly of the month, which uh, isn't very exciting for Clark. And sweet cousin Eddie, what's he say? Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving. You know it. You're quoting it with me. You know, Cousin Eddie had some issues for sure. Cousin Eddie had some issues for sure. But you know what? Cousin Eddie had gratitude. He understood what it was to get a gift. So, Clark, you get, you get the jelly of the month. You, you didn't deserve it. It's a bonus. They're giving you something. Be thankful for what that thing is and appreciate it. As I look at these things that we are given, and you think about the overall gift of Jesus, the overall gift of our salvation, again, if we unpack this package and look at what's inside of it, that he satisfies justice. We saw that a few weeks ago in our Isaiah series. He atones for us, that he procures favor, right? Old saying, it pays to know so-and-so, right? Pays to have connections. We've got connections. I don't have time to reference the verses today, but they're there. Look at Revelation 22:17 if you want to look at one passage. He purchases a peculiar people, right? The Bible says we are not our own. We're bought with a price. And sometimes we're kind of annoyed by that, right? Our initial reaction to that is I'm bothered by that because I want to be my own. I want to do my own thing. No, that's the Bible. It's like a promise. You are not your own. You've been bought. You've been bought back in. He's purchased a peculiar people. He's given us his spirit. It says he gives, pours our spirits into our, our hearts. Galatians 4 speaks about that. He conquers all our enemies. He's Christus Victor. 
if you want to use that phrase, he fights for us, he wins. We saw that in Isaiah as well. And then he doesn't just um, right the ship, but he delivers us. He brings us into everlasting salvation. He has a fellow feeling of our infirmities, as funny as that wording is. But sit and think about it this week. Even think about that wording. He has a fellow feeling of our infirmities. Our Savior, the Lord of the universe, knows what you're worried about. He knows what burdens are on my heart. He knows the things that are weighing us down. He's familiar with it. He's not distant from that. He's close and cares about it. We have adoption as sons. We have comfort and access with boldness to the throne. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. And I pray, Lord, that uh, in that sense, we would have that heart of Cousin Eddie. We would have a posture of gratitude for every blessing that comes our way. And certainly, Lord, for the manifold blessings that your word tells us and these uh, statements of faith from the history of the church really highlight for us that you have done. And so, Lord, we want to be thankful for the gifts. We want to be thankful for time with family. We want to be uh, thankful for the fun and entertaining things that we might get to do over the next few weeks and for the food. Lord, help us be most and primarily thankful for all that's been done for us. In Christ, fully God, fully man, our Savior, we pray in his name.